Back in 1984, Tina Turner released a landmark song that's still on the radio today, and I borrowed the title of that song for our sermon today in 1 Corinthians 13. What's love got to do with it? Probably most of you are familiar with the song, but I'm going to remind you of some of the lyrics anyway. She writes, You must understand, though the touch of your hand makes my pulse react, that it's only the thrill of boy meeting girl. Opposites attract. It's physical. You must try to ignore that it means more than that. What's love got to do with it? What's love but a second-hand emotion? What's love got to do with it? Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? No, I think that song captures something of the superficial approach towards love that we've come to embrace here in the West I think it also captures some of the cynicism we can develop over time as we question whether the love that we experience in this life can ever live up to our expectations and the deepest longings of our heart. This deep desire in each one of us to know and to be known, to love, to be loved. Expressing love and receiving love in a broken world can be difficult because it involves great effort and great commitment, but also because it involves great risk. A heart that can be broken. And so instead of pursuing genuine love as described in the Word of God, we are often content to settle for a cheap imitation. What Tina Turner calls a second-hand emotion. Perhaps believing that the real thing may just be a sweet old-fashioned notion after all. And as a result, the sacrifice and the commitment that come with genuine expressions of love are traded in for a skin-deep sentimentality. Something that is temporary, something that is disposable, and ultimately something that will never satisfy. We live in a world, friends, that is obsessed with love, but a world that knows very little about it. As we turn this morning in the Word of God and continue in our series in 1 Corinthians, we arrive at a passage that will help us to understand the true meaning of love according to the Bible that will help us to get beyond our sentimentality and to see where this love can be found. Well, the question has been asked, what's love got to do with it? This morning, Paul gives the answer to us. In the church of Jesus Christ, it has everything to do with it. It's not a second-hand emotion. It's not a sweet old-fashioned notion. It's at the very heart of our God. And it's what our God has called us to be and to do as those who reflect His image here on earth. And so with that introduction, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 13. Listen carefully as I read from God's holy and inspired Word. If I speak in the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. 
Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall be fully known, even, I shall fully know, even as I've been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. The word of the Lord. Although the book of 1 Corinthians would probably not rank very high as the favorite biblical book for most Christians, I think there's little doubt that the chapter we've just read together is a favorite chapter of many people. It's true to say that many people in our culture who would rarely open up their Bibles, who know very little about the message of the Bible, would have some vague familiarity with 1 Corinthians 13. This chapter is a literary gem that stands out in the inspired scriptures as a thing of great beauty and majesty. It's what some have considered to be Paul's finest piece of writing, his most enduring written legacy. Now, though strictly speaking, the verses in front of us this morning are not poetry, it's hard to deny this chapter has a poetic and almost lyrical feel to it. The beauty of Paul's writing here, the subject matter he's addressing, is one of the reasons why this text is often read at Christian weddings, occasionally even at funerals. We find references to these words in greeting cards and on wall plaques, on trinkets in the bookstore. Most likely, some of the words and phrases here in this chapter are embedded in our minds and even committed to our memories. To put it mildly, this is a familiar part of the Bible. And because it's so familiar to us, there's a danger this morning. We will simply gloss over these inspired words without considering just how radical, how countercultural they really are. 1 Corinthians 13 is not a part of God's Word that should bore us or else to fill us with mere nostalgia. This is part of God's Word that should surprise us and shock us and even deeply convict us. Because here in these verses, we are confronted with the true nature of biblical love and we are also forced to examine the true state of our own hearts, our own relationships, our own churches, where this kind of love is often lacking. There's truth to that old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. And if you've already heard a dozen sermons before on this text, let me encourage you this morning to keep tracking with me. Because properly understood, this is a part of the Word of God that will revolutionize our lives and our churches as it points us to the one who is loved by definition and as it leads us to repent for the various ways we have failed to love one another as God has loved us. You know what's tragic about the vast majority of sermons and homilies preached on this chapter is a stubborn tendency to rip these verses out of their original context and to treat this chapter as a standalone text about love. 
The sheer beauty of this chapter tempts us to study these verses in isolation without paying attention to what comes before it in Paul's argument and to what comes after it. This is the advantage to studying the Word of God in an expository style, chapter by chapter and verse by verse, because the Apostle did not write these words in a vacuum. And although the words and the themes contained in this chapter are certainly applicable to weddings and marriages, the Apostle Paul did not write it for that purpose. You see, friends, in its original context and setting, 1 Corinthians 13 was written as a rebuke to the church in Corinth. This is Paul's effort to call the Corinthians back to faithfulness in their relationship with God and their relationships with one another. So this morning, as we work our way through verses that are indeed very moving and beautiful, we can't forget why Paul wrote these words in the first place, and we can't ignore how this chapter fits into the bigger picture about spiritual gifts and corporate worship in the church. Over the past month or so, we've taken a break from this series in 1 Corinthians, but I hope that you remember we are now in a section of this letter where Paul is dealing with dysfunction in public and corporate worship. Back in chapter 11, the apostle dealt first of all with a group of women in the church who are trying to usurp the authority of their husbands by removing their head coverings, a provocative action that was sexually suggestive and disrespectful in that particular culture and context. In the church of Corinth, gender roles that God had ordained from creation were being blurred and crossed over. And Paul's first task here is to restore order and decency in public worship. The second half of the chapter, Paul turns to the abuses surrounding the Lord's Supper because in Corinth, some of the wealthier church members were intentionally excluding and humiliating their poor brothers and sisters. On top of this, believe it or not, the Lord's Supper had descended into a gluttonous feast where people were acting selfishly and stuffing themselves and getting drunk off of the communion wine. And in our last sermon back in November, Paul turned to yet another dysfunction in public worship regarding the exercise of spiritual gifts, and in particular, the gift of tongues, which had become a source of abuse and division. Back in chapter 12, the Apostle Paul uses the image of a human body to explain the concept of membership in the church, one body that is composed of many members who each have a a special gift and a unique role to play. The local church, our unity with one another, is expressed through a diversity of function. And later on in chapter 14, the Apostle Paul is going to have a lot more to say about the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. Lord willing, next Sunday we're going to study that difficult subject together. And I'll stick my hand in the hornet's nest. And so understand here, brothers and sisters, 1 Corinthians 13 is not an isolated, standalone text on love. It's not a text that we can rip out of the Bible and apply just as we'd like willy-nilly. The Apostle Paul has specifically written this text and placed it in a discussion on spiritual gifts so that we, the church, will understand how the gifts are to be exercised for His glory and for the common good. This is a chapter written specifically to Christians who had an unbiblical view of the gifts and in the process had neglected what is most important in the Christian life, love for God and love for one another. 
In Corinth, the gift of tongues had been wrongly prioritized and elevated. Paul is now going to correct their faulty way of thinking by demonstrating the absolute necessity of love as the foundation for everything else in the Christian faith. Well, as we consider this morning Paul's instruction on love, the way that love relates to the exercise of gifts in the church, our attention will be drawn towards three important truths. Be reminded in these verses, first of all, about the supremacy of love in the body of Christ. Then secondly, we're going to be confronted with the characteristics of genuine love. And then thirdly and finally, we will see the permanent nature of love. So with God's help, that is where we're heading this morning. The supremacy of love, the characteristics of love, and the permanence of love. Let's begin our time in the Word with Paul's teaching on the supremacy of love. Verses 1-3. to If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. It's no coincidence that the Apostle Paul begins this chapter by mentioning the gift of tongues, one of the things that was creating a great deal of controversy in the ancient church of Corinth, just as it does today. I'm not going to attempt this morning to define the gift of tongues or to get into a detailed explanation of all the issues involved, because that is going to be our task in the next chapter. But I do think that Paul's choice of words here in verse 1 gives us some insight into what was going beyond, behind the scenes in this very troubled church. In Corinth, some of the members of the church had the gift of tongues, or at least were claiming to have it, and they were parading that gift as a mark of spiritual maturity and as a sign of their superiority over others. Tongues had become a dividing line in the Corinthian church between the so-called mature Christians who had arrived on the high plane of spirituality and the so-called immature Christians who were still struggling on the lower level. From Paul's distinction in verse 1 between the tongues of men and the tongues of angels, it would seem that some of the Corinthians were claiming that the languages they were speaking in church were also spoken by the angels in heaven. Now, of course, some, is, some would object to that interpretation, say Paul is just waxing eloquent here in verse 1. He's just speaking in hyperbole. But I think it's far more likely that Paul is building an argument on claims that the Corinthians were making, specifically the claims that they were speaking in an angelic tongue. Now, already in previous chapters, we have observed the arrogance of the Corinthians, their conviction that they were already experiencing the full blessing of God's consummated reign in the here and now. Is what theologians sometimes call an over-realized eschatology, or to put it more simply, it is the misguided belief of Joel Osteen and company that we are already living our best life now. We get the first hints of this delusion back in chapter 4, where the apostle uses sarcasm to cut the Corinthians down to size and to bring them back to earth. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might rule with you. See, a segment of the Corinthian church had come to the conclusion the fullness of God's kingdom had already arrived and it was this false and over-realized view of the kingdom that was creating so many of their problems. 
Their disrespectful attitude towards church leaders. Their refusal to maintain normal sexual relations within marriage. The actions of the women in removing their veils. The way in which the gift of tongues was being abused. The way in which the resurrection was being denied. Most of the practical dysfunction within Corinth can be traced back to their bad theology. And this dysfunction extended to the gifts. Corinthians assumed they were already speaking in the language of heaven and they interpreted these unusual manifestations as a sign of their superiority. Now in verse 1 of chapter 13, Paul is going to rain on the parade by telling them, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong. Clanging cymbal. Even if it's true, Paul says, that you guys are speaking in the language of the angels, the fact that you are doing this with a total lack of love for one another makes this activity totally useless. In order to drive home the point, the apostle draws a comparison between this kind of noise in the church and the annoying banging and clanging of a gong or a cymbal. You know, when you're listening to an orchestra play music, the well-timed use of a cymbal or a gong can be a beautiful thing. But when somebody is just banging on these things all by themselves, they amount to little more than an irritating racket. In fact, the banging of gongs, the clanging of cymbals, is what happened in the pagan temples of that day as the pagan priests tried to wake up their false deities and to drive away the evil spirits. Far better to keep your mouth shut, Paul says, to say nothing in the church than to open your mouth and speak the most eloquent tongue with no love in your heart for your Christian brothers and sisters. And by the way, friends, that same principle applies not merely to the gift of tongues, but also to the gift of teaching and preaching. And so this is a reminder for me as a pastor and a teacher, the most eloquent sermon I will ever, ever write in my life is a mere pile of rubbish but is not delivered with love for Christ and love for the brothers. And that doesn't just go for me, it goes for anyone and everyone who's been called to preach and teach in the local church. Well, from the gift of tongues here in verse 1, Paul moves on to a couple other spiritual gifts that were highly prized and valued in Corinth. Prophetic gifts that would give the believers wisdom and knowledge and insight into the great mysteries of God's Word. Previous weeks, we've already seen how the pursuit of wisdom had led these Christian, Christians down the pathway of division and away from the simple preaching of the cross. We've seen how their knowledge of Christian liberty on disputable issues had fostered pride in their hearts rather than building up the body in love. Prophetic gifts are good. Prophetic gifts are desirable. They're useful when they lead God's people to a greater understanding of the revealed Word. But when these things are removed from the foundation of love, they serve only to puff up and not to build up. Pursuit of theological knowledge, the pursuit of biblical insight is good and valuable in the life of the Christian, but not if the main motivation is to stroke the ego or to feed a superiority complex. You can be the most eloquent preacher in all the world. You can be the most insightful theologian in all the world. But if you don't have love in your heart for God and for your brothers and sisters in Christ, you are nothing. And by the way, notice here in the text, Paul doesn't just say the gift is nothing. He says we are nothing. Without the love of Christ, we are worthless, useless, spiritual windbags that are of no value to the kingdom of God. 
And if we follow the logic of Paul's teaching, there's a sense in which the exercise of the gifts apart from the foundation of love makes us worse off than we were before. Just as the noise of a clanging gong and a banging cymbal is worse than the sound of silence. Apart from the love of Christ in our hearts, nothing that we say is of value. Nothing that we know is of value. And thirdly, we discover that nothing that we do is of value. Sell your possessions if you wish. Give the money to the poor. It is of no value if that action is not motivated by the love of Christ in your heart. The most extravagant act of benevolence that is motivated by a desire to be seen or to be complimented or perhaps to ease a guilty conscience is useless apart from love. To be frank, you'd be far better to keep your money, to keep your possessions, to spend them on yourself than it would be to give them away if your motive for so doing is to be seen and applauded by men. Because the only type of charity that our God accepts and rewards is altruism that comes from the heart of love, and that love must be put there by God Himself. By the way, this is one reason why it is impossible to earn our way into heaven by doing good works because the very act of trying to earn something from a holy God is an act of sinful pride and it renders the deed worthless in God's eyes. No better than a filthy, dirty rag. Friends, this is strong teaching from the Apostle Paul, but the crescendo comes at the end of verse 3 when he speaks about the ultimate sacrifice that can be offered in this life. If I deliver my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Shocking as this sounds, even martyrdom at the stake is of no value to God if it is done for selfish reasons that are not rooted in the love of Christ. Over the centuries, many of our Christian brothers and sisters have been burned alive. They have been killed by many other methods for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But many others have died in these ways too. Many others have stoically laid down their lives only to pass through to the other side and to wake up in an eternal hell. To die a painful death for a cause that's important may seem noble on the surface, but ultimately it is vain if the sacrifice is not motivated by a love for God and a love for others. And so, friends, we are only three verses into this text, but already the shallow sentimentality that surrounds this chapter is beginning to fade away and it's being replaced by a certain level of discomfort. As Paul drives us off our safe refuge of abilities and gifts and good works as he points us towards the one thing that can make our lives acceptable to God, profitable to our fellow man, and that is love. And by the way, this is not a love that you and I can earn. It is not a love that we can artificially manufacture. This is a supernatural kind of love that comes to us as a gift of the Holy Spirit through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There is only one place where you can find this love and you're not going to find it in religion. You're not going to find it in good works. Like many good living religious people in our world today, the Corinthians thought that they were okay with God because they had the skills and they had the talents and they had the ministry responsibility. They had a, good li a list of good deeds in their back pocket. But now with Paul's help, the eyes are being opened. A painful reality is starting to set in. All of these things, however noble they may seem on the surface, are nothing. And indeed, we are nothing. 
if we are not motivated and enabled by the love of God. Well, Paul's aim here in the first three verses of the chapter is to challenge the thinking of the Corinthians, showing them that nothing that we can say or know or do is of any value apart from love. And now in verses 4-7, to the apostle continues the argument by giving us a multifaceted description of Christian love. You'll notice as we dive into these middle verses, Paul does not so much define love as he describes what love does and what love doesn't do. Study these verses carefully. You will find 15 verbs that all have love as a grammatical subject. Paul chooses to use verbs instead of adjectives to describe Christian love, and this observation reinforces a truth about love that is often lost in our culture. You see, friends, love in the biblical sense is not so much an abstract feeling. It is a concrete action. In our modern Western world, we've grown accustomed to thinking about love in terms of feelings that can come and go. But in the Bible, love is primarily something that we do as Christians and not something that we feel. Love is a commitment to act in the best interest of another person, to put that person's needs before your own. That's why in 1 John 3, the apostle tells us not to love with words or speech, but with action and truth. That's why the Lord Jesus commands us in the gospel to love our enemies, to do good to those who spitefully use us. You see, friends, when the Bible speaks about love, when the authors of Scripture command us to love the brothers and sisters in the church and to love the enemies outside of the church, they're not commanding us to conjure up warm and fuzzy feelings. They're commanding us to act in the best interest of the other person as an act of worship to our God. Now here in verses 4-8, to the Apostle Paul gives a descriptive series of verbs and it would not be difficult to preach an entire uh, series of sermons on each one of these characteristics. You'll be relieved that we're not going to do that. Maybe another time. But for our purposes this morning, I want to move through these verbs quickly. Don't want us to get bogged down or to miss the forest for the trees. First attribute of Christian love that Paul mentions here is patience or long-suffering as it's translated in the old King James. There are a couple different Greek words for patience. The one Paul has chosen in this context describes our response towards other people and not our response towards life circumstances. It's one thing to be patient when we encounter difficult situations in life. It's quite another thing to be patient when we encounter difficult people. And when used in this context, patience means we are slow to get angry when others irritate us or let us down. Describes the kind of person who has the power to avenge himself of wrongdoing, but chooses instead to endure the provocation without retaliating or getting even. This is very much in line with the character of Jesus Christ, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Secondly, Paul tells us here that love is kind. And simply put, this means a willingness to show mercy and goodwill towards others. And so we discover in this chapter, Christian love goes beyond patience and non-retaliation. It requires us to be kind towards other people, even as our Father in heaven is kind towards us. 
These two descriptions of love, patience, and kindness are rooted in the very nature of God Himself, a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. You know, friends, if anyone in this universe has been treated unfairly, it's God. If anyone in this universe has the power to avenge himself, it's God. But yet the Almighty Creator God who has been subject to so much rebellion, so much mistreatment, so much blasphemy is still patience towards the One He has chosen, not willing that any of them should perish, but that all of them should come to repentance. And as we read several times in the Bible, it is the kindness of our God that leads us to repentance. He's a patient God. He's a kind God. And his desire is that we as people might display that same patience and that same kindness to others around us. Well, Paul begins here with two positive verbs, but from this starting point, he launches into a series of negative descriptions that help us understand what love is not. First thing that Paul wants us to know by way of negation is that love does not envy. Though we often think of envy in terms of wanting something that belongs to someone else, the root cause of this sin is actually a refusal to rejoice in the success and the blessing of someone else. It's a self-centered orientation that is put out of joint when we are doing poorly and someone else is doing well. It's a very ugly manifestation of sin. It's the opposite of love because love rejoices in the success and the blessing of others. The church of Jesus Christ, we are called to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep because we're members of one body. We belong to one another. Next in the list are two more verbs that are closely related to one another. Paul tells us that love does not boast and that love is not arrogant. To boast really means to heap praise upon yourself. To be arrogant means to have an exaggerated view of yourself. Once again here, these two traits are the opposite of Christian love. They come from a self-centered orientation, the narcissist within each and every one of us who cares more about himself than he does about someone else. Writing many years ago about the sin of pride, C.S. Lewis observed, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I've heard people admit that they are bad-tempered, that they can't keep their heads about girls or drink, even that they are cowards. I do not think I've ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who is not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault that makes a man more unpopular, no fault of which we are more unconscious of in ourselves, and the more we have in ourselves, the more we dislike in others. C.S. Lewis is right on. Pride and arrogance is loathsome. It poisons our relationship with one another. And it was these characteristics that were wreaking havoc in the Corinthian church. Some of the members in this church were puffed up in arrogance and pride. They were boasting in their gifts and their abilities, while other members in the church were filled with envy and discontent at what God had given them. And so we see here in Corinthians, arrogance and envy fit hand in glove. Both of these traits, along with boasting and bragging, are totally contrary to the spirit of love. 
we sang it earlier, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast save in the death of Christ my God. Verse 5 of our text, the Apostle goes on to tell us love is not rude. That's a verb in the Greek language that describes indecent, graceless, and inappropriate behavior. You know, here in Canada, we have an international reputation for being very polite. As someone who grew up in this Canadian culture, a culture that still values courtesy and respect to some degree, I can tell you there are few things that irk me more than rudeness. We all know it when we see it. We've all been guilty of it sometimes. Indecent, graceless speech and behavior. Rudeness in ancient Corinth was seen in the way that wives were relating to their husbands. It was seen in the way that the rich were disrespecting the poor around the Lord's table. It was seen in the disrespect that certain members of the church were showing towards their pastors and spiritual leaders who God had put in place. Rudeness was undermining the unity of Corinth and it will erode any Christian church today. Next on Paul's list is selfishness, the desire to get our own way, even though the Scriptures tell us we are to consider others as more significant than ourselves. And on the heels of selfishness comes irritability, the person with a short fuse and a quick temper that is always ready to snap back or to erupt like a volcano. Irritability is the negative counterpart of patience, and I'm sure that we all know from experience, as well as from the teaching of God's Word, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Although it's absolutely true, there is such a thing as righteous and godly anger that is directed towards sin and injustice in our world, 95% at least of the anger that we manifest in our homes and our churches and our relationships is sinful to the core. It is the polar opposite of biblical love. The God who's revealed in the Bible is indeed an angry God. His wrath is revealed from heaven against unrepentant sin and sinners on earth, but He is not a quick-tempered God. He is, as the Scriptures say, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And if it is true that our God, our God, it should also be true of us, His followers, who are indwelt by His Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you struggle with anger and a bad temper, as I sometimes do, it is a sure sign that our love is not what it ought to be as benefactors of God's grace and patience and kindness. Those of us here today that have a short fuse and a bad temper must repent of that sin for it will never produce the righteousness of God. Be angry, the Bible says, but sin not. Do not let the sun go down upon your wrath. Lastly, but certainly not least in this list of negative qualities is the verb resentful in verse 5. What this word indicates is a desire to closely maintain a record of wrongs that have been committed against us. Resentfulness in our lives comes from record-keeping, a refusal to forgive others of the sins they've committed, and what it ultimately leads to is bitterness, unforgiveness, and the stubborn maintaining of grudges, some of which can last for decades if they are not resolved. You know, when the occasion arises, that wrong can be pulled out of the archives of the heart and mind, and all of the hurt and the anger of the past will rise to the surface, just as though it happened yesterday. How thankful we ought to be, Christian friends. This is not the way our God relates to us. 
How grateful I am this morning for those comforting words in Psalm 103, God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. You know, one day when I meet the Lord Jesus, He is not going to greet me with a long list of sins that I've committed and that He's refused to forgive. If God doesn't keep a record of the great debt that I owe to Him, what right do I have to maintain records of the petty sins that have been committed against me? In the church of Jesus Christ, we are not to keep a record of wrongs. We are not to resent one another. We are not to nurse grudges. Rather, the command of the Word of God is that we would be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. If you're a grudge holder, if you're a record keeper, perhaps today would be a good day to let your debtors walk free as we come to the Lord's table as we reflect on the tremendous debt of sin that God has removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Well, Paul has now given us two positive attributes followed by seven negative attributes. He's going to conclude this description of love on a high note with a few more positives, the first of which contains both sides of the coin. Verse 6, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Although we're living in a culture now that values tolerance and tends to equate love with a total lack of judgment or negative evaluation, this is not how the Scripture presents the love of God. Christian love is sometimes tough love because it's the kind of love that rejects what is morally evil and instead rejoices in the truth that's revealed in the written Word of God. Back in ancient Corinth, the believers thought that they were being very loving because they were tolerating unrepentant sexual sin within the church. But rather than slapping them on the back for being so progressive and open-minded, the Apostle Paul instead issues a blistering rebuke and instructs them to exercise discipline immediately to put the unrepentant sinner out of the church. Brothers and sisters, we are called to love sinners recognizing that we ourselves are forgiven sinners who deserve damnation. But that does not mean that we sweep sin under the rug and pretend that sin isn't there. Nor does it mean that we encourage behaviors, beliefs, and lifestyles among our members that are not in accordance with the Word of God. In a biblically-oriented church, love for the sinner, concern for God's reputation, will compel us to take our stand on the truth He's revealed, even when it's painful to do so, even when it's difficult to do so, and even when it's unpopular to do so. For love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Next up, Paul says that love bears all things. What this means is that we need to act in such a way that our aim is always to protect one another from the deceitfulness and consequences of sin. It's what the author to the Hebrews was was saying when he instructs us to exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Christian love bears all things and it also believes all things. And this, by the way, doesn't mean that Christian love is naive and gullible. It doesn't mean that it's unwilling to follow the evidence where it leads. What it does mean is that Christian love is willing to give the other person the benefit of the doubt. 
Because there are times in any relationship where we'll be tempted to read into the other person's words and actions, perhaps even to jump to conclusions about what they said or did. Sometimes we are prone to judge the inner motives of another person's heart, which is something that only God can know for sure. And in these kinds of situations where we're not sure what to think, the Apostle Paul cautions us not to judge prematurely or to jump to conclusions based on things that we cannot know or see. And so rather than examining one another under the microscope of suspicion, our impulse as Christians should always be to think the best of one another, never to assume the worst until the worst has been proven. Next in the list is the fact that love hopes all things, meaning that love never despairs. Love never gives up hope on another person. You know, sometimes in the church, our people will disappoint us. Sometimes people will rebel and walk away from the truth of God. But love never despairs of hope. Christian love perseveres in prayer for the lost and wayward person, believing like that wise old woman in the book of Samuel that our God devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. The posture of Christian love towards the wayward sinner is the same as the father in the parable of the prodigal son, always looking for the son to return, always ready to embrace and to forgive. Genuine love persists in hope. This is why Paul adds in verse 7, love endures all things. Sometimes our love for other people is battered and beaten and worn down. No matter what opposition comes up against it, genuine Christian love that comes from the Lord will always stand up and persist. It is not a love that gives up and walks away when the going gets tough. It is a love that is there for better, for worse, in sickness and in health. Till death do we part. That should not only be true of our marriages, it should also be true of our churches. You know, we've taken a whirlwind tour through these characteristics of love. One quality remains to be seen in verse 8. Love never fails. Or as the ESV puts it, love never ends. Paul's emphasis here is on the permanent nature of Christian love. And this final attribute of love brings us to one of the main arguments Paul has been developing throughout this chapter. We mentioned the Corinthians believed that the possession of certain spiritual gifts such as tongues and prophecy meant that they had already progressed to full maturity, that they were already living the heavenly life here on earth. And now the Apostle Paul is going to show them that they've actually put the cart before the horse. Because it's not the gifts that will last into eternity. It's love. Spiritual gifts are important. Spiritual gifts are necessary for the building up of the church here on earth. But no spiritual gift is eternal. That's where the Corinthians had gotten it wrong. For as Paul now tells us in verse 8, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now, over the years, there's been considerable disagreement on the meaning of this verse, in particular, what Paul is, means by the phrase, the perfect. But disagreements aside and debates aside for a moment, the main point that Paul is making here is clear. Spiritual gifts are temporary. And whatever you might think about the gift of tongues and prophecy, there's one thing I think we can all agree on this morning, and it's this. 
You and I won't be speaking in tongues and we will not be prophesying in the consummated kingdom of God. Because according to Paul, these things have a limited shelf life. And once the perfect comes to the, on the scene, whatever that may be, the gifts will fade away and will no longer be of use in the Christian church. Now next week when we get into chapter 14, we're probably going to return to this verse as it relates to the gift of tongues. But for now, let me just lay a few of my cards on the table and say that I'm convinced that the perfect is a reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ and the final consummation of his kingdom. Now there are some people, maybe some in this room, who would disagree with that and suggest that the perfect is a reference to the completion of the New Testament Scripture which happened at the end of the first century, or perhaps it refers to the universal recognition of the New Testament which happened by the middle of the fourth century. It's a very common interpretation among those who do not believe that the gift of tongues is an operation today. It is the interpretation that I learned and embraced growing up. But personally, I no longer find that line of thinking convincing at all, and here's why. If we want to argue that the perfect arrived when the New Testament canon was completed, we need to be consistent in our interpretation and see verse 12 in the same way when the apostle says, for now we see in a mere dimly but then face to face. Because according to the logic of the text, once the perfect comes, the dim mirror is gone and we're beholding God face to face. We're knowing Him just as we are fully known. And although I'll be the first one in line to affirm the authority, the inerrancy, the sufficiency of the written Word of God, I'm not convinced that we are already beholding God face to face. Nor am I convinced that because we have the Bible in our hand, we know Him fully just as we are fully known. No, friends, it seems to me that the most natural interpretation of this text is to identify the arrival of the perfect with the second coming of Jesus Christ. And if that is indeed the correct interpretation of the verse, as I believe it is, then and if Paul is making here a reference to the second coming of Christ, we can infer that the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy have not yet passed from the scene. And so if you've ever wondered whether I'm a cessationist who believes the gift of tongues is a thing of the past, the answer to that question is no, I'm not. Now, Paul is going to have more to say about the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. If you want to learn more about that subject, you're going to have to come back next week. But controversy aside, Paul's main point here is not difficult to understand. Love is permanent. Spiritual gifts are not. And even when it comes to that triad of virtues, faith, hope, and love, Paul informs us that love is the greatest of them because love is the only one that will last eternally. When God's kingdom finally arrives in all of its fullness, faith will be no more because we will see the Lord with our eyes. Likewise, hope will be no more for the object of our desire and hope will be ruling and reigning in a restored world that is free from groaning and sin. But unlike these virtues of hope and faith, love is forever. And if anything, this virtue of Christian love will grow stronger and more perfect on that great day when we see our Lord face to face, when we know as we are fully known. What's love got to do with it? It's got everything to do with it. In light of everything that we've studied and learned in the Word of God this morning from this beautiful chapter, I want to leave you with these inspired and appropriate words from the Apostle John.
Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Herein was manifested the love of God towards us because God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Amen.